With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. F1 is a team sport, but at the center of every squad are two fierce opponents, the drivers. What makes them champions is their instinctive desire to fight. When the visor is down, they just turn into like beasts. So you want to keep that. You don't want to curb that. Unleashing those beasts, but making sure they don't eat each other, is one of the many things on Laurel Rossi's to-do list. The Alpine CEO helped keep the peace between Esteban Ocon and Fernando Alonso when they were teammates. But I told him, I said, I'll let you race as long as you behave like adults. I'll treat you like adults. If one of you is in the ditch and we don't finish and have as many points as we could have because the car has the potential, then that means you behave like kids and I'll treat you like kids. And I will basically ground one of you or the both of you and I will do it and you can sue my back, if you will, <laughs> I will do it. Now it's Ocon and Pierre Gasly in the blue and pink cars, childhood rivals of the past. Wins with Alpine could be in their future, and Rossi needs them to join forces and fire up the team. Those two basically could rekindle a relationship, not a friendship necessarily, but a relationship, and that's nice. Hello, it's Tom Clarkson here. It's F1 Beyond the Grid, and this time we're at the very top of the Alpine F1 team. CEO Laurel Rossi might be a suit-wearing business leader, but he talks racing like a true fan. Because he is. He grew up on the French island of Corsica with the sound of rally cars ringing in his ears. He started work at Renault's engine department, studied at Harvard and worked at Google. And now he's in charge of the growing Alpine road car business and the F1 operation. 2022 saw Alpine finish fourth in the Constructors' Championship, a great result, but they were a long way behind third-place Mercedes. There was also upheaval and controversy when their junior driver, Oscar Piastri, decided his future was with McLaren. Laurent explains what he and the team learned from that episode, and he talks about the impact Pierre Gasly has made and how he and Ocon are already working together. Plus, managing perhaps the ultimate competitive beast, Fernando Alonso, and why it'll take teamwork for Alpine to climb the F1 mountain. Laurent and I talked on the eve of the first race of the season in Bahrain. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Laurel, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's great to see you. Now, before we get into it, I want to emphasize how unique you are in the Formula One pit lane because you're CEO of a road car company and a Formula One team. I don't know how you have the time. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for notice, noticing. Uh, I don't, but I'm, I'm trying to balance uh, the two activities a bit more, especially since uh, the arrival of Otmar last year. Just tell me what a typical day looks like for you. How much of your life is Alpine road cars and how much of it is Formula One? 
Well, it's changed over time. Um, in the first few years, it was um, 60% of my week, let's say, uh, Formula One, and 40% of the rest, obviously, the road cars, as well as being a, uh, an executive of the Renault Group, because this is also a, a duty of mine which was not good uh it was not doing a service to any of the of the <laughs> areas but i had to do it for formula one sake because i needed to uh, figure out things and decide for myself what type of uh, organization i wanted to put in place and and which areas i need to reinforce which i did and i think now it's gone the other way around more like i tried and contain Formula One to the weekend of Formula One. Uh, and I'm trying to not do all of them, uh, even though it's very hard, um, which which is a bit better. So basically during the week, I have the road car job. During the weekend, I have the Formula One. You talk about the culture that you have at Alpine. What does Alpine stand for? What? Tell me more about the culture. Well, we, we're very lucky that we inherited a brand that's born from racing. So the founder, Jean Redelet, uh, back in 55, 1955, created only race cars. He had no interest in road cars uh, back then. It's only Renault when they acquired uh, uh, Alpine this, that decided to uh, create road cars. And so our true DNA is, is racing. And as a matter of fact, after Luca de Mio decided to uh, regroup all of the sports uh, activities, the motorsports activities of Renault under one banner, the Alpine One, we have now um, kind of like gone back to our roots with uh, racing being at the center of everything. Alpine means racing. This is what we are. And what about you? Are you a racer? Did you, growing up in Corsica, imagine that the Tour de Course yeah. rally and things like that, is racing part of you as well? Yeah, big influence. The, the, um, the Tour de Course was obviously the big event of the year for, for everyone and especially for myself. My father being a mechanic, uh, sometimes racing, sometimes uh, helping racers himself because he could, uh, he could uh, fix cars and, and all. Now, I was... Kind of like uh, lucky enough that in my family it's hardworking people, uh, no diploma really, so they basically worked from 16 year old and never stopped. So they basically forced me into considering studies, which I did. So it was not an option to become a racer or anything like that. It could be a, a hobby, like my father did, but I needed a real job per their own <laughs> words. <laughs> and I have to say, it's probably for the better because. I love what I'm doing. I love the strategic part and execution part of the job. Uh, I love being also involved in sports uh, activities. So, in fact, I have the best of both worlds today. Do you find it inspiring being involved in sport, being surrounded by racing drivers and, and brilliant technicians? Absolutely. Uh, I think, I mean, up until the, the, the day I started this job in Formula One, I was always using, and I'm still using that even more so now, sports uh, metaphors, analogies. For me, sports is basically the essence of effort, um, you know, commitment to uh, a result and excellence. So it was always for me something that I would bring into my world, whichever world I was in, uh, whichever career I was uh, following. And now it's almost just natural because it's part of it every day. And you have to you have to admit those champions as well as those engineers committed to that uh, uh, engineers, mechanics, everyone truly uh, committed to that sport. It's just mind blowing. Like the efforts, the amount of their lives they put into that thing just for entertainment of others. 
it's just mind-blowing it's admirable well, and you get to deliver the the competitive juices on the squash court you still play don't you I'm yes, rumor I, in the I try to keep that uh, <laughs> as my, uh, if, if only activity, at least the central one. Uh, I play, um, let's say, <laughs> two times a week when I can. So, because squash is kind of easy, right? You just need to find a partner in 45 minutes. So, chances are at 9 p.m. after a long day of work, you can always find someone. Um, so, I try and do that. And then over the weekend, of Grand Prix, it's a bit more difficult because squash is not that popular. So, have you found a racing driver to play squash with? I, I hear that uh, Carlos Sainz uh, senior was a was champion very good, and the, and the, the son, the driver, the the, the other driver, both of them, is is not bad either. But uh, I guess the schedule is difficult. Uh, Esteban kind of plays a bit. Uh, I think they all move to paddle, uh, which is the most popular and probably less traumatic activity. Now, Carlos Sainz Jr. against Laurent Rossi is a match I want to see. <laughs> let, let, let's Perhaps the only place where I could beat. let's move on track uh, and talk about alpine's 2023 season what are your goals two years ago i said and everybody was like ah they're still buying time we were on a hundred race uh journey and i maintain that Uh, it takes time to turn around the ship like that to uh, basically get to where Mercedes is, uh, was in fact, uh, Red Bull is. All these teams have taken like a good three, four years, five years for, for some Ferrari even longer to get back to the podiums. And so we are on this path, hopefully. Um, the first two years of that kind of four or five year plan are uh, going well. They, they delivered according to our uh, expectations. We finished fifth in 21, fourth in 22. So it's only natural now we're looking towards the other uh, spots up there on the podium. But I have to say we're also very well aware that the gap to third is far, like it's big. Uh, so I think this year, which is a critical one, we need to show that we're capable of getting closer to these guys. Of course, to beat them would be ideal. So everyone has that as a... As a stretch target a moonshot i would say uh but the minimum is to finish fourth and and start like bridging that gap to third because it was 342 points that's the right. gap between you and mercedes which last is, year. yeah which is roughly three times more points the gap than the points we scored so it's it's a hell of a lot <laughs> <laughs> it's a big gap so we're just closing that gap yeah and to close that gap there's no other way around you need to basically climb on the podiums every now and then you cannot just finish like five six seven like, uh, every race which is already good because uh, let me remind you that two years ago we were barely fighting for a point here or there. Uh, that was our our daily, if you will. So it's a it's a tremendous amount of progress. But now it's like climbing a mountain. Uh, every time you go higher, every amount of effort to get the same point is a bit more difficult to the to the organism. Like right, you 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 breathe a bit more difficult like in a difficult way to get there. So I, I guess we're there now uh, and we need to stay there and, and continue. When you say you think you're there now, are, are you there in terms of um, the technological capability of Enstone and Viri? I, I was there not so long ago and I was blown away at how you've transformed that place yes. since Renault came back into Formula One in 2016. Yeah, that's right. Um, we're not there yet, obviously. We, it's going to take a bit of time because... 
um, of course, the cost cap is the best thing that's happened to us because it's leveling up the playing field. But at the same time, the advantage you acquired over 20 years of over-investing compared to others, you're not going to catch up like that. But we are. We are trying. So we're basically investing heavily, massively in all of those uh, um, facilities, equipment, resources. Uh, and not just physical resources, people resources as well. So we're trying to, uh, we're not trying, we are on our path to getting uh, closer and closer to a top team structure, which we didn't have before. And one of the big things we had this year, which is getting us even closer to that is, for instance, that testing like bed, like rolling bench in Viri, where you can try the chassis and the engine together. Um, so it's basically kind of like, now allowing you to oversee 70% of the problems you would see while driving on track, which gets you in a place where, well, usually every year it was always impressive to see the top three teams arriving for the first day of Barcelona and Bahrain and just like, boom, get get onto it, like with 40 laps. And everyone, every other team was like trying to fix the little problems. We have that facility now since this year. So we basically knew when we arrived in Bahrain, we would just completely go through our program without having to worry about anything. So that's that's a difference. That's something new. Um, Was that a big investment? It is a big investment. Yeah, mm. yeah. You have to transform an entire uh, uh, like engine uh, test bed, if you will, uh, expand the room. It's it's a big investment. It's like in terms of capex, capital expenditure. It's it's more than a hundred of thousand we we in the vicinity of a million uh, and more so but it's an important one um and we we trying and do that in very in and stone uh in both places obviously and i'm uh, every time i'm saying we're trying we're not trying we're doing it uh, we have a, a program um that we devised after a year of analysis uh, the first year when i arrived which co- which is called the mountain climber which is the gap bridge the gap to uh benchmark and or best in class because to win you basically need to be at the very least at benchmark in all areas and in best at best in class in some areas aero and and so forth and so on so we're trying to get there we devise a program of investment of hiring of organizational changes to get there and we are now way there you used the expression a moment ago overspending at the front of the grid the mercedes the ferrari the red bulls yeah and do you think renault underestimated the situation at lotus because there had been 10 years of under investment in your team while the others were- i am not sure they underestimated it um i just simply think that the magnitude of investment made by all others was not in the realm of capabilities that we had as a, as a an automotive group Back then, I was not there, so I, I couldn't say. But I have to say, knowing well the intricacies of a of a, a group like Renault, um, I can imagine that we're talking about like seven, eight, nine hundred million, perhaps a billion every now and then of investment by those top teams, even by Toyota back then when they tried uh, to succeed in Formula One per year. This is like three times, four times the order of magnitude of what you usually spend, especially now under cost cap. It's easy to we have the numbers we couldn't afford that like a group like Renault who has the responsibility of 140,000 people cannot overspend there at the risk of 
you know, losing on the other side, which is the car business, which is paying for all of this. We have to <laughs> remember that. Uh, and so you cannot put the, the, the jobs and lives of so many people on the line just to be competitive in a sport. Uh, it was not... It, it was not a uh, rational thing to do. Now we're getting uh, in an era where we can compete with uh, the same amount of money. Of course, we still need to catch up on those things, but we can do it gradually. Do you still believe the adage, win on Sunday, sell on Monday? Yes, I do. I do. Um, it was always already true back then when you had V10, V12, and and you would sell that to your customer of a four inline engine uh, because it was selling your expertise it was selling your capability to develop high-end pieces of technology and so if i can do that i can certainly do your everyday engine don't worry for 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 that about that but uh, it's even more true now because we're getting in a very interesting time where motorsports and the the car industry are converging. Uh, Well, first of all, simply because of electrification. Um, Now the the rule of the game is to optimize the use of the battery everywhere. Whether you have a fully electric car or an hybrid like an F1, it's the same exact principle. Uh, As a matter of fact, there is even an acronym for that, which is uh, battery management system. And we have the same acronym in Formula One and in the rest of the industry, which is how much of torque power can I get from this battery and how much can I uh, replenish the battery to deliver that torque and power repetitively. It's the same problem, exact problem for both, uh, except one car is delivering a thousand uh, horsepower, the other one is covering a billion kilometer. So it's a bit of a different story, but at the end of the day, it's the same problem. So the convergence becomes quite interesting because if you win on Sunday, you can pretty much use that uh, uh, experience and, and know-how on Monday and put it in do the cars that people will want to buy. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Ford and Audi are joining Formula One just, just around the corner. Yes. Is that convergence you talk about the reason why this sport is proving so irresistible to OEMs, to, to manufacturers? Well, I wouldn't speak for others, but I, I'm assuming, yes, there is something there because if F1 was uh, irrelevant to them, uh, they would not invest since F1 becomes something that you can leverage uh, for the sake of commercial purposes. Yes, it is interesting. And then again, it's also uh, something that shows who you are. Uh, For us, Renault, um, F1 was pretty much uh, threatened two years ago or three years ago because the results were not coming and the investment was still, even though it was not 800 million a year, was still like significant. Um, And then look at the Mio arrive and say, I am not going to be the CEO who's going to stop 40 years, 40 plus years of Formula One at Renault. It's part of our DNA. So he saved... Formula One, he saved the DNA of Renault, but by saying that, he said the DNA of Renault is motorsport. So for us, irrespective of the convergence, it's also a statement. We are very much into competition, very much into sports, motorsport. Whether you're going to find that in your car or not, it doesn't matter. It's kind of like you want your brand, the 
group brand as well as the IPM brand to also mean something to people, not necessarily provide you a product. Also, sometimes you just want to identify to a brand that says something to you. Are you enjoying building the brand of Alpine? Oh, I love it. I think it's the best job I've ever had. Uh, not a day without uh, being grateful to uh, look at the Mio for the opportunity, to be honest. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, it's a, it can be a beast because essentially I work from Monday to Sunday night, no weekend, no nothing. But I would not change for anything in the world, never. And has Luca de Mayo given you some goals in terms of car sales? By the end of 23, I want you no, to be selling uh, this much, 24, that much? No, not, not necessarily car sales. Uh, it gave me a very uh, high level, but at the same time, very precise objective, which is to make a successful brand. And by that, uh, we measure it uh, mostly in like brand valuation, if you will. Uh, how much is the Alpine brand worth if it were uh, independent, for instance, if you, could, if you could assess the brand? And by brand, I mean two things, right? There's the value of the brand itself, back to what I was saying, uh, those iconic brands like Nike and, and Apple that you can even put on your balance sheet. And there's the value of the company. So both of them. So basically he said, I want you to grow that brand uh, as a brand and as a company. Um, and, and I have clear objectives, which I will not mention here, obviously. <laughs> uh, and we're trending towards that. And it's the most exciting job because those objectives actually work by developing both Formula One and motorsports in general. Because we're not just Formula One, obviously it's the central totem, like the most visible one and, and a great one. But the rest as well in motorsport is quite important. And the road car activities. I cannot get to the objectives uh, with, with, with a sign for uh, Alpine by simply focusing on one or the other. Right. And are we going to see Alpine expand into new markets, North America? Yes, yes. We're basically in a three-phase plan. Um, the first phase is most over, which was basically maximizing the output of uh, our, our road car, uh, only road car, the A110 while making the brand known through Formula One, uh, using one to reinforce the other, obviously, uh, and it's successful with triple the, the sales over two years. The, the value of the brand as well has, has been multiplied by three, so it's working out well. The next phase is going to be to expand um, our lineup while also uh, maximizing the uh, potential of the brand in the European territory and a couple of key markets like Japan, which are current like playground if you will that goes until 25 six more or less and then the last phase which is the most exciting one i mean every single phase is exciting but the last phase is going to be to uh, further expand the lineup to then conquer new markets and north america is pretty much on our uh, radar Fantastic. Sounds sounds great fun. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of the, a lot of responsibility, a lot of work, but a lot of fun. Yeah. Now look, let's talk drivers. There's yes. a lot of focus yep. on your lineup in Formula One. Both Esteban and Pierre mm -hmm. are winners. Both are French and both are from Normandy. Is nationality important to you? No. None at all, which is the the big uh, <laughs> the big surprise everyone gets all the time. Uh, if Pierre had been from Bangladesh, I would have taken Pierre. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it's a nice um, opportunity. We can leverage the uh, French team, even though, to be honest, I'm very mindful of the fact that we are a British team as well, like a British outfit. And Stone is the center of gravity of Formula One uh, at Renault at Alpine. Uh, and it's not 
pure French. So it's a French brand with a, a, a British uh, outfit, if you will. So we, we have those two cultures, two nationalities, and I'm proud of it. So it's not just French. Um, it helps us um, in a way uh, to convey a bit of a, the Alpine legacy, which is nice because Alpine is a brand from Normandy. So that is pretty cool, actually, because we want to keep the past, the heritage and, and, and make it like active, you know, like project it into the future. So those two are a fantastic embodiment of that, right? Like it's a brand from Normandy that is basically uh, uh, her heralded, if you will, by those two young promising uh, superstars so that's cool that works for us um, it helps us in France also to convey a bit of a, this French team and rally the crowd behind us because we're not exactly Ferrari it's not a religion in France right like you can be from north or south of Italy everyone loves Ferrari in Italy in France we like to have our own little like uh, conflict and disagreement so at the very least they don't have to choose now the both of the French drivers are in our team so we are the French team but do you have the crowd behind you in France and do you have the media behind you I don't know I we, we certainly don't have them against us uh, for sure uh, I've, I've noticed a change of, of mood uh, at the very beginning everyone was skeptical because it's true that uh, Renault has been trying to get back on, on the podiums for a long, 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 long time unsuccessfully. And it's been a bit of a tiring factor for a lot of people. Be like, yeah, we don't believe in that anymore. Uh, I think they start to see the momentum because to get to fourth last year was a big progress. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming there is something happening now and we're getting more and more of the, of the support of the, of the crowd. I mean, the sales are through the roof and people are constantly uh, telling us that they love the brand. So I, I guess something is happening, yeah. Sure, Damon Hill told me a story the other day that he was doing a, a, some driving thing in France and they were in lots of different kinds of cars, but the people driving the Alpines were the ones that got cheered on the side of the yeah, road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the funny thing is, I drive my Alpine every day, obviously in Paris. I, I still get like thumbs up all the time, uh, everywhere, which is very funny because the car has been around for eight years now. It's not like it's brand new and people are like discovering it. This this, this brand has a kind of a, an amount of sympathy it conveys, uh, and we and we we're happy with that. We want to keep that like this. What about Esteban Ocon then? Yep. Uh, this is his fourth year with the team. Um, how have you seen him evolve both as a driver and as a person in the time that you've known him? Well, um, there's no mystery about the fact that I've very quickly uh, tried to make Esteban feel comfortable in the team. Uh, because Esteban, what was remarkable about this, this boy is that He's never had an easy linear path. Uh, every single year, most he was told, that's it, that's over. Uh, that's the end of the road with us. And you need to find another gig next year, which is super difficult, especially in a career like that. You need a bit of a, of a runway, right? You need to feel comfortable about the fact that you're going to drive for a while and that you actually can make this job your, your job for real, not just a hobby, like, <laughs> like I was mentioning about myself earlier on. And it's never, ever been easy for him, like really. Um, and so irrespective of, of that, I also knew that this boy has uh, been successful in all categories, has been racing uh, against Max, Charles, everyone that is top driver today. And like he's beat them over time in the past. So I'm like, he has some potential. Let us put him in a, in a, in a, 
more comfortable zone, not fully comfortable because he needs to be on his toes all the time. That's important. But let us see what he has in store. If we give, give him the environment, like a bit of like peace of mind. And so that's why we decided to bet on him for uh, three years um, and give him a bit of a, of a runway also because back then, to be honest, nobody wanted to come to Alpine, let's be clear. Uh, so it was as good a driver as we could get. Uh, and I've always said Esteban is at the very least a very good second driver. Everyone interpreted that in different ways. But when I said that, it's like there's no one and two at Ferrari, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people think there's a two. Uh, there's no one and two at uh, Mercedes, and that's hard to figure out who's the two there, <laughs> to be honest. And I think Esteban would be one of those two, whichever person you would pick in both of those teams. So that's what I meant by that. It's like when you gave him that that yeah. runway, that comfort. Yeah. Did you see a change in him? Yes, I did. Absolutely. What was the change? Well, he started like driving more efficiently and putting things together for the long term, not trying to impress everyone at every race which is a very different thing because he was taking inconsiderate risks and he was like basically driving perhaps without knowing with that fear that he had to potentially lose his, his, his wheel, his seat on that race. So basically it was different. And I told him now the, the, the thing is you need to grow, like grow up like in many ways and grow the team with yourself. That means you need to be more of a, of a strategic driver and a leader, which is extremely different from just being a super fast, uh, cool boy. That's a different, different story. Um, I need you to exhibit the, 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 the qualities that might make you one day a world champion, which is something different than just racing fast. All of the drivers on the grid are racing super fast, no doubt. They could beat one another on one lap, no doubt. Like even the last on the grid could beat the first on one lap, I'm pretty sure, and they would admit it. But on a long term, building a team, rallying the people around you, extracting the maximum uh, performance out of your car, but not just the car, out of the factory, out of, out of like the 1,200 people supporting you, that's a different ball game. And that's what we, uh, I told him to do. I gave him those three years in exchange of take the team high, higher up with you. And then when he won in Hungary, did that accelerate the change? Well, uh, not really, because uh, it, it was a bit of a... It happened earlier than, than what we, we imagined, to be honest. It's not like we had planned to win that year. As a matter of fact, we didn't win last year. But it showed a lot of things. It, it exhibited a lot of strength and, and qualities, both in Esteban and the team. Like, because we basically were in the lead very early in the race, and we had to keep that lead, which is super difficult, especially when you don't have like the fastest car far from it, uh, of the grid. So him, uh, he showed a lot of resilience, racecraft, and the team as well, which was actually super uh, encouraging. And we saw that again in Suzuka last year That's when right. he was battling Lewis Hamilton for P4 and kept him yeah. behind. That's right. He made a lot of progress there. Yeah. He used to be potentially a little bit more of a feisty uh, driver. He's still feisty, and I hope they, they keep that feistiness. I mean, like people always ask me about the fact that drivers can... Uh, fight with another. It's normal. They would lose the sense of competition otherwise. Uh, it, it's only normal they do that. But now he does it with the conscience that he's serving a team and not himself. What about Pierre Gasly? What are your first impressions of him? Very motivated. Incredibly motivated. I think... Um, 
he realizes that it's a great opportunity. Um, and, and to be honest, it is potentially a critical like point in his career. Uh, I told them both at your age, given the fact that when you be done with your contract, we both be very close to 30. It would be very dangerous for you to be uh, let go because you didn't exhibit the maturity and and the behaviors that we expect from people who want to aim a higher. And, and I think Pierre exhibited that from the get-go. Like he's extremely mature. He's extremely conscious of the fact that the train might not stop again, right? Uh, and he's on the train now and is very motivated. I mean. I don't know if you've seen him um, right at the end of his physical uh, prep. It was just impressive. He was as wide as Esteban is tall, which is just, <laughs> I was like, my God, did you pack so much muscle there? Yeah. Uh, Pierre is extremely athletic. Uh, mm. There's no secret about the fact that he could have been a professional fo like, football player uh, rather is than... Is he that good? He's amazing. At football, really? Oh, yeah. He was actually hesitating between the two and he decided he would have more chances in Formula 1 because there's less people. So what was Pierre's reaction when you said, well, look, we're getting... We're Zinedine getting Zidane. <laughs> Zinedine Zidane as an ambassador. Oh, he was, he was thrilled. Uh, he loves champions uh, and for a good reason because he was thrilled because... He was looking forward to getting the insights from uh, a former world champion himself, like to basically manage pressure, manage performance on the mid, like short, mid, long term. Do you think there is a cross pollination between what Zidane was I'm, going through as a I'm, professional footballer? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty right. sure there is. Um, yeah. In in the lives of all those those like athletes, uh, elite athletes, there's always doubts. There's always like ups and downs, and you need to manage that. Uh, there's also how you manage your time, how you manage your leisure, how you manage your entourage. Uh, I manage a career, uh, and then Zidane has done that individually and as a manager of talents, because as the head coach of Real Madrid, he had plenty of Zidane's, or actually not necessarily at his level, but like <laughs> very worthy players. So having someone like that uh, is extremely uh, precious. And those are the things that actually Zidane won't even pass on to us than to him. He will pass it directly to Pierre and maybe in like, two conversations of five minutes or 10 minutes. And that's largely enough because champions, they recognize each other. Uh, they, they speak the same language. They, they are very aware that they are into something special, like into this like one person, top one person or zero, zero, one percent of the, of the performance. So this is great. You say Pierre is very motivated, but what impresses you about what he's doing inside the car and how he's interacting with the team? Well, it's shown that um, he's ready to develop the, the, the team as well as himself, which is important for me, for Esteban, but also for Pierre, because we're in the middle of uh, the river, if you will, right? And, and we left the bank, we want to get to the other bank, and we need everyone's effort, everyone's participation. We don't need selfish behaviors. We don't need a driver that would just like get into the car, drive fast, and be like, this is it, I've done my job. Pierre arrived, uh, was extremely motivated in trying to figure out who's who, who's working, uh, like what's the working ways of every single one of the people he's going to work with. And that was from day one, like in Abu Dhabi, uh, the test. 
he really made a conscious effort of really getting to know every member of the team, working directly or indirectly with him. He wanted very early on to go and visit the people in Enstone, which is normal because this is where he's going to spend a, like a, quite some time, like at the simulator and so forth. But also went to Viri, which is a bit of a you know, the tour, <laughs> normally drivers don't go off on there. He asked me to go to Viri. He said, I want to go there. I want to meet the people. I want to see the, the, the facilities. He's really, really involved. Uh, he's showing that he's committed to the project. And I think it's already a plus because he's a leader now. And that's what I expect is he's, he's taking the whole team behind him. They're following him, which is quite impressive. Like, mm. And everyone is already quite happy with him. It seems like he's been with us since five years now, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's a compliment, isn't it? Now, you, you touched earlier on their relationship. Yep. They've known each other since they were in karting. Their yeah. friendship has been on and off, yep. I think we can say. How much time have you invested trying to get to the root of the problem? That's, Do you think there's a problem? The, to be honest, I didn't spend one minute trying to figure this out because it's not my problem. It shouldn't be. It's 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 uh, it's something between two people and I don't think there is a problem, to be honest. Why I'm saying that is because those two guys know each other since they're six. Why? Because they were from the same uh, area. Uh, by area, I mean like small district in France, not like larger district, like very, very, very small district doing the same thing go-karting. So there's not like 25,000 people doing that in France, let alone in the same district. They had to know each other. They were six-year-old. You cannot force a friendship if there is not necessarily a strong basis for a friendship. How many people do you still know, do you still call friends that you knew when you were six? I don't know you. I only know like three of them. I always say that. And they live in an island. They got stuck there, my island, Corsica. If it was not for that, we might have been scattered and don't don't talk to each other anymore since then because that's walks of life. I mean, there's so many people that have been in my life and disappeared and same for everyone. I don't have that many friends that I know from way back then I was six years old, first of all. So it's only natural that you lose those friendships and actually, were there really friendships? It was just comrades, right? Like you, they were like the fellow drivers that you knew, like me, I knew people when I was playing handball or, or doing that sport. I don't know them anymore. They were my friends too, sort of, but they're not anymore. And then the second thing is, they were in a super competitive environment. And back then, what were they dreaming of? Becoming the new Pros, becoming the new Alizy, becoming the new perhaps even Penis. There was only one of them. So they were not going to be like, oh, I'm your friend, let's go play PlayStation, and then I'm going to destroy you on track for real. That doesn't help forging a friendship. So I don't find it absolutely abnormal that they lost that friendship over time because guess what? It was probably not a friendship. It was just not just like the colleagues in a way, like we are. We're not all friends in our jobs, right? But we just work with each other. So to me, it's just that. And I don't expect them to be friends. I don't need them to go on vacation. I don't think a lot of drivers go on vacation together all the time. Uh, I just need them to be adult and professional. That's it. The rest, it's their problem. If they want to go barbecue, play whatever, they can do it. If they don't, not my problem. I, I'm not the father. They have one. Uh, I have a, a fatherly attention to things, but it's not me who's going to decide whether or not they have a relationship. 
And how has their relationship been so far? Are you impressed with how they've interacted? Well, I mean, everyone is expecting something, right? And I I think there's going to be a little bit of like a riffraff, right? They're going to be like, which is normal. The first thing teammates want to do in in any F1 outfit is to beat the other. Why? Because they have the same machinery. And that's the most direct comparison. You can always find an excuse if Lewis beats you in a Mercedes or Charles beats you in a Ferrari because they have a Mercedes or a Ferrari or they are Lewis, whatever, right? Uh, whereas if the other guy in the same car beats you, most of the time people are going to be like, then it's better than you. So they're always going to have this kind of pressure. But for now, they uh, doing what they should do, which is working together as teammates, not showing any like kiddish behavior, childish behavior, animosity. Uh, and I have to say, I feel like there's a bit of a, oh, that's cool to be back together. And they say it often. It's kind of like nobody asked them to put that picture of the two of them when they were six year old the day Pierre signed the contract with us. It was, it was really heartwarming to see that. Like those two basically could rekindle a relationship, not a friendship necessarily, but a relationship. And that's nice. Just that. That's it could nice. happen. Could happen <laughs> for them to do. What is it like disciplining racing drivers? And I and I, <laughs> I'm thinking back to Brazil. Yeah, you know, in the sprint race when Fernando and Esteban um, touched. What was that like? It's a delicate thing because you don't want to discipline those those guys in the sense that what makes them champions is their instinctive desire to fight. They turn into like animals on track and that's what separates them from us uh, and they could be the most amicable persons off track but on track when the visor is like down they just turn into like beasts so you want to keep that you don't want to curb that and that's why i've always said let them race i'm gonna let them race all the time and people were scared because two three times during the year they they had like some pretty close combat uh, mm. but i told them i said i'll let you race as long as you behave like adults, I'll treat you like adults. If you make the team worse off, if one of you is in the ditch and we don't finish and have as many points as we could have because the car has the potential, then that means you behave like kids. I'll treat you like kids. And I will basically ground one of you or the both of you and I will do it and you can sue my back, if you will. <laughs> I will do it. And so I think they understood that because it's basically treating them like adults. I give them the keys, the responsibilities. I'm not issuing orders, or Otmar for that matter, because Otmar is the boss in the team. Uh, But I'm reminding them of the responsibilities they have, the responsibilities to take the team higher and the responsibilities of 1,200 people working for them uh, in the factories in Enstone and Viri, as well as the 140,000 people of the Renault Group working for them. Because again, who's paying for the bill is the rest of us. I don't want to linger on this, but it it was actually a large part of Drive to Survive. Everything that happened last summer with with Oscar Piastri. You've had a few months to reflect on what happened there now. What did you and the team learn from all of that? Well, we we learned a lot, to to be honest, and uh, we'd be foolish not to learn from from that. Um, We learned a couple of things. I I would say there's no such thing as loyalty, especially when individual interests are at stake. It's difficult to combine both for people that are sometimes a bit too young to weigh the pros and cons of both. 
And then uh, we also learned that we were insufficiently uh, prepared uh, on a couple of uh, areas, uh, especially in the way we structure our contracts with the academy drivers and the way we transfer that into the, the Formula One world, which I guess everyone was because you heard Toto and uh, and, and Christian, I believe, uh, saying it was going to set the precedent. So we learned that we left too many doors open in our contract because no one thought those people would just go and leave uh, using that uh, open door. Uh, it would would only be normal to come back to the team that uh, help you. Well, we, we, we're going to change that. We've changed that already. We've a bit more um, corporate and protective of our contracts now. It's a bit more stringent if you want to sign something with Alpine. Um, it's less of a, let's shake hands and we're happy you have you in the family. It's You're still in the family, but you're in the family with a contract. It's like... Your kids have a contract with the parents. It's a bit sad, but it's the way it is. Uh, you never expect your kids to leave the the bedroom one night and never show up again. Uh, and you would certainly not put locks and contracts. We're forced to do that a bit. I guess it goes with the evolution of also the industry. Uh, with um, more stakes, more money involved, uh, which potentially can make your head spin a bit uh, every now and then. So we have to come to terms with it. We're getting more and more professional, which means we need to be more, more and more professional in every single uh, aspect of the sport, including the way we're contracting. I think it raises an interesting question about driver development programs. Yeah. Okay, you can tighten up the contracts, but do they actually work? Are drivers loyal by nature or are they so ferociously competitive that they'll always be disloyal in the end if there's a better opportunity elsewhere look uh i wouldn't i wouldn't call driver disloyal to be honest they they also have their own career to manage and god knows it's a difficult one because there's a really few of them and it's ferocious as you said and they, they don't have an easy one right if they have a bad year they just get the boot and and it's tough so I think they also need to manage their own interests. Now, there's probably ways to, to do it. I would have not necessarily prevented those cars from leaving. Should he had come to us with something a bit more structured that says, hey guys, I'm also having this offer. What do we do? Can we talk? You know? It just caught us by surprise. I guess it caught also Ricardo by surprise, which says a lot, right? So. That, that might be a little bit candid uh, and we don't want to be candid anymore and so that's why we put that into contract I don't it's you know it's okay it's over now I don't we learned the lessons for ourselves the rest it's just one person uh, I actually wish him well and that's about it you wish him well is he welcome at Alpine down the road Oh, I couldn't see. Or is there too much water under the bridge now we'll see when we get there right yeah. uh but there's no, there's no need to, to hold grudge. It's like it's destroying you and destroying the things you want to do. So, you know, that's gone. We've, we're better off with Pierre now. So why would, I, why would I want anything else? I mean, like, I'm fine with that. If down the road the opportunity arises, I'm not saying no. I'm not saying yes. We'll see. We'll see where we get there. Can we talk about Otmar Safnauer now? Yes. Um, I loved... Um, the episode in Drive to Survive when he's, you know, allegedly driving to work on the first day. Je m'appelle Otmar. How is his French coming on? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> he's never talking French to me, but I don't make any effort. I don't speak French to him either. Um, look, how would you sum up the job that Otmar's done for you? 
Uh, nothing short of like uh, uh, critical because Otmar has been the quintessential glue between the teams. And by the teams, I mean, of course, Enstone and Viri, uh, but also Enstone, Viri and the track because the track team is a bit of a different thing. It's a bit of a different animal. And there's a human side, the dimension to it, uh, bringing people together, creating an atmosphere. There's also a technical uh, dimension to it. The, the unit of time of track is maximum the week, minimum the hour, right? In an hour, you need to think, turn things around. In a week, you need to figure out what happened to you the last one free and change it. The unit of time of the factory is, is the month to the year because you develop things at a different pace. You need to recombine those two. And that's what Otmar is doing. And it, it looks easy from, from higher up, but the job of team principal is a super difficult one because you have to reconcile a lot of different time horizons, skills and priorities and put them together towards performance. And that's what Otmar is doing. Was anyone else in the running for the job? at the start of last year? Uh, yes, yes, there were a couple of people, but some of them were not available as simply as that. Uh, Otmar was pretty much top of the list because he's, he's done something that we really, really were uh, impressed with, which was the days of uh, Force India, basically bring the seventh or eighth budget on the grid to the fourth position, um, which which speaks a lot about the things we want to, to create in the era of Costca being efficient and effective is very important. And were you impressed with how Otmar dealt with the scrutiny with the Alonso Piastri saga last yes, year? Yes, yes, yes. He put himself on the line, uh, under the line of fire, uh, did his best, did very well um, and preserved their interest. And I think, you know, of course, the drive to survive is just one angle uh, and perhaps sometimes a little bit of a, a twist on how things really happened, uh, even though the reality is still preserved, you know, it might be a bit of sh like narrative shortcuts, I would say. But at the end of the day, what happened is also that Otmar was uh, behaving in a very honest, transparent manner, defending our interest with a lot of like um, uh, principles. And I don't think it's a shame, and we are ashamed of anything, and it shows, in, I think, in the episodes. At the end of the day, we don't look like fools or dishonest people, and that's a lot of credit goes to Edmar for that. Technically, uh, you've got, a, a, I think, the dream double act. Uh, Pat Fry, who's been at the sharp end of Formula One for, what, 35 yes. years? Uh, Matt Harmon, uh, previously from Mercedes. Their job is to make the car go faster. Do you think they're up there with the best technical double acts in the history of the sport? <laughs> well, in the history, I wouldn't say because we haven't won world championship to basically claim that, but it's certainly a very, very strong uh, uh, pair for sure. I mean, Pat Fry is exceptional. He has like a depth of knowledge that's tremendous. Uh, he has a super sharp eye. He's been there, done that. It's incredible to have him. And Matt Harmon has seen what good look like uh, in the top teams, the recent ones like Mercedes, and is a power unit engineer, which also was extremely important for, for me because being myself a modest uh, engine engineer, I know there's a different, vastly different job from being a designer uh, or an aerodynamics uh, uh, engineer. 
And the two of them basically, first of all, um, complement each other and create a fantastic uh, um, like atmosphere or even more than that, a uh, context uh, environment for both Endstone and Viri because basically Matarman can speak to Viri and integrate Viri into the development of the car. Not to say that Pat Fry couldn't do it, but you know, even engineers are weird animals, so you like to speak to your uh, own tribe. And Pat Matarman is very much a uh, PU uh, issue, like tribe animal. <laughs> <laughs> so that helps us a lot and it shows. I mean, we've, we've done a much better engine last year. That's credits to Viri, but but Matt uh, was obviously overseeing that from, from a distance as the grand architect of the car. And together with Pat, they created the best uh, combo, which we didn't have before. Uh, using, uh, we, we, de we decided that when we elected uh, Matt uh, as a team uh, technical director, we decided that uh, we will call the car a system, which is normal for engineers, right? And everything else is a subsystem, the power unit being one. Uh, and as, as critical as the power unit is as a subsystem it's still a sub system and it has to be integrated in the system with the certain amount of constraints and this uh, matt was the kind of like link between the two that makes very feel like okay we're going to optimize the subsystem but still using the car system framework and that's how you become a real works team before we were just like a concatenation of two uh, factories now we've finally come back to a works team structure really interesting and and do you think the pu is where you want it to be performance wise well, it's definitely uh, better than where it was to be honest with you um i i, I i'd like to say, i like to say that you don't win a championship only because of a pu but you certainly lose it uh and and the deficit of performance that the pu was generating in the in the prior years was making it impossible for us to aim at anything better than fifth like we were basically losing a good three to five tenths a lap uh, because of the PU uh, only because the integration of the PU was not uh, perfect and and not not because the PU was not good in and of itself but it was just not optimized uh, mm -hmm. integration wise I mean Viri are pretty much capable of extracting um, a much uh, like as much horsepower as they want from the, 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 the PU but it was not like a seamless job in terms of integrating the two the new one is definitely much closer uh, to the to the competition. I think we're like in the ballpark of a tenth with the best. So that's just fine enough because uh, let's remember we have a second to uh, catch up with Red Bull, something like that. So <laughs> I think the whole field does it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. That's true. But at the moment, I'm only concerned about myself and our team. Uh, and, and so basically, uh, uh, it's much better to think that, okay, if, if we get to a 10th, then we, we'll be in a good place. Uh, the rest is down to the car. How do you feel about a, a second supply of, of the power unit? How, how integral a, is that? No, for? it's not integral. It's nice to have, but it's not a must-have. Um, yeah. Only because um, we've been there in the past and I've, I've listened to the people that have lived that experience and it's a toll, it's a tax on the teams because whenever you have a problem, whenever everything goes well, it's a smooth sail. Whenever you have a problem, suddenly it's it's mayhem, it's chaos. You have, you have, you have to have your own team focusing on the on the customer because they're paying and so you need to fix their problems and and if you're a bit different in terms of 
definition, technical definition, you just basically have to split yourself in two, which makes it very hard to support both teams, unless you're fully structured for that, but it's very hard. Um, and so for us, it was more important to basically uh, collect ourselves, turn ourselves around, restructure ourselves, serve ourselves first, which we are finally doing now. And you saw it at the test, we just do what we, had to, we have to do, deal with our own problems. We're finally getting to a place where we can we, we can handle ourselves properly and start looking at other teams, potentially customer teams. But it is not a must-have. It's nice to have because, of course, if you go to track like Bahrain and you have three times more the number of engines running around, like Mercedes, for instance, you're going to have three times more data. Yeah. But you can also have three times more problems again. So you'll have to decide, careful what you wish for, right? So you have to decide. For us, we at that stage now, we start considering that we could do it. But do we need it? Not necessarily. You've had the most extraordinary career so far, and there's still so much of it ahead of you. You know, motorsport, then business, then back to, to motorsport, I suppose we can call it now, but obviously yeah. the roadside as well. Boston Consulting Group, Google. When you combine all of that just how different is formula one to everything else you've done outside of it well it's 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 immensely different because it's a world of its own um it's difficult to compare it to anything else but in talking with uh would-be investors friends in other sports i also know that it's the same for them what strikes me is that it's a it's a world of exceptional individuals doing exceptional things and this is where having learned from organizations similarly positioned like Google or BCG, because it's really in like exceptional individual individuals doing exceptional things in a different field, right? In consulting, it was mostly like thinking about extremely hard problems uh, for corporations doing business globally. <laughs> and at Google, it was thinking about customer and delivering uh, exceptional products for an organization that's used to uh, uh, catering to everyone's problems every day. So it, 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 I'm, I'm drawing from that and I'm f I find it natural to use it in this exceptional world of Formula One. Uh, it's different, but we use a lot of the same uh, tricks, I would say. Mm. And because of where you've worked, you've spent a lot of time in North America. Yes. Do you think F1 has finally cracked that market now? Three races over there this year? Uh, yeah, I pretty much think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, it was a high time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is nice to see that, to be honest, because it's going to... I mean, obviously, North America has brought a lot to the sport in a way, right? Thanks to Netflix, uh, there's no doubt. Thanks to Liberty, of course, even more important, <laughs> uh, because they've changed the, the way we do the sport in a way. And they know how to put on a show back there in, in the US, so you have to say, you have to give it to them. Uh, and at the end of the day, our industry is also a show, it's entertainment. Uh, sports is a show, right? Uh, we're back to the circus in the old days, Panem and Sekensem, right? Like uh, bread and, 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 and circus, that's what we're doing. So it's good to have them because they, they, they help us professionalize the sport. Uh, make sure that everyone is uh, going to be sustainable from the top team to the last one on the grid, which is quite important because that makes the sport more like uh, uh, viable and also more enjoyable for everyone because it really is a show. So I, I, I love the idea that uh, North America 
loves Formula One now. And, and Formula does, One loves America, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and does Formula One need another American team? And I'm, I'm obviously thinking about Andretti, really. I don't know about that, to be honest. Um, I think Andretti is a big name in motorsport, so it wouldn't hurt. But at the same time, I'm very aware of the fact that uh, there's no obligation for uh, the circus to represent the whole world because there's only 10 teams so it will always be unfair to some some places it would make sense for them to basically try and get this uh, this license but then at the end of the day it has to be uh, something that brings value to the whole circus and that's for them to demonstrate it to the rest of the of the teams i'm i'm not going to position myself on this one okay well look do position yourself on the podium this year i would love that best of luck thank you very much great to have you on the show thank you so much thank you so much for having me it would be fantastic to see alpine on the podium again wouldn't it there's so much to take away from this chat with laurel his passion for the sport comes across clearly but so does his no-nonsense attitude He faces any question head-on, and you'd expect him to deal the same way with whatever is in his in-tray regarding Formula One. And having now spent a bit of time with Laurent and Alpine team principal Otmar Safnauer, I can see why they rub along together so well, because they both view the business of racing the same way. Thanks again, Laurent, for your time. It was great to chat, and I look forward to seeing you at a racetrack again soon. Now, as in the past, please send me any thoughts or stories that you have on Laurel, and I'll share some of them at the end of next week's show. You can reach me at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Charles Leclerc after last week's show. There is so much love for the Ferrari star out there. And let's start with this from Melem Abed. It made me laugh that there really was a piano. Uh, Let's go for a great season. I hope there will be a good fight for the championship between Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes and hopefully Aston Martin. And by the way, I like the new Beyond the Grid music. Thanks for the note, Melon, and we're glad that you do like the new tune. This next one is from Sava. It's always great to hear from Charles. It's great to see him in a great place mentally, given the pressures of racing in Formula One. This interview was the best way to start the season, and I really hope he wins the championship this year. Thanks, Sava, and I'm sure you're not the only Ferrari fan thinking that way. Finally, let's hear this from Emma. Love the new episode. Charles was open and honest in holding himself and the team accountable for the mistakes in 2022, ensuring they learn from them. I loved hearing about his interests outside Formula One. He remains humble and clearly appreciates his privileged position. Well, thanks for that, Emma. And please, everybody, do keep your thoughts coming in. We love hearing from you and we love hearing your reviews. And with that in mind, thanks to Matthew Tawney in Australia, Dutch podcast listener in the Netherlands and Sev the Panda in India for leaving us five star reviews this week. Two more things before I leave you. First, the F1 Nation Bahrain Grand Prix review is out now, featuring reaction from Red Bull, Aston Martin, Ferrari and many more. Search F1 Nation on your podcast app to listen to that. And have you joined F1 Unlocked yet? Sign up for free on F1.com for loads of exclusive features, including a regular diary column from Alpine's very own Pierre Gasly. Unlock that and much, much more at f1.com. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. 
F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>